Good morning. So glad to see you this morning. Glad that you are here. I want to start with an announcement before we jump into the sermon. Uh, I want to say that you've probably noticed that our crowds have been rather large, uh, really since the first of the year. Even this summer, we only had a couple of times where we were under 600. Uh, we set new averages this summer. We are ex currently experiencing about a 16% growth rate for this year, which is astounding. But we got to make room for folks. And uh, so starting January the 5th, we will uh, do our concurrent service schedule uh, indefinitely. So that will be a Sunday routine every Sunday where we will have chairs set up in the family center and then of course our service here. We've done that about three times and it went well and we are going to start doing that full time starting January the 5th. And so uh, there will not be, uh, we won't be tapping people on the shoulder and asking them to stay in the family center. It'll be what you prefer. There'll only be about 100 to 150 chairs set out in the family center. Uh, we would hope that that creates enough room in here. Uh, we've done a lot of research on this. This is not something that we just came up with. Uh, something that we've been studying. Tom Bailey has done a lot of research on this and, and what we were noticing was we were, we were capping out at a certain number and then kind of slowly declining. You may have noticed that with our attendance figures. Then we'll climb back up and then we'll cap and then we'll come back down again. And the theory is that uh, perhaps um, we get to a certain level and folks can't find a seat or maybe can't find uh, a parking and therefore it uh, causes some issues. And so we don't want to miss an opportunity. We want to give everybody an opportunity to come here and worship. How big do we want to be? I don't know, but we want to give everyone an opportunity if they want to be at Oldham Lane to come in and find a place where they can sit and they can worship. We've made uh, concessions for parking and we've added some temporary parking and now we want to make some concessions to allow for some seating. And so this is a congregation that has its roots in setting up chairs and taking down chairs when we were at the old 16th and Vine building. And then, of course, when we moved out here, this has been a working congregation all along that has made concessions along the way to accommodate growth, and we want to do that once again. Is it ideal? Maybe not. Obviously, ideal would be a place big enough for all of us to be together, but we think that this is the best option that we have at the time to create space and to allow everyone an opportunity to be here. Still get to go to class together, still get to get out of worship together at the same time, and then also if we have fellowship meals or anything like that, we get to spend that time together as well. So that's starting January 5th. There'll be more said about that as we get closer to it. Uh, and since 1947, there has been a group called the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists that have kept a doomsday clock. In fact, you can go to the website, I think it's called bulletin.org, and see that the doomsday clock right now is set at two minutes before midnight. Now, midnight represents the end of the world. That represents global catastrophe. The fact that it is set two minutes before midnight means that these scientists believe that global catastrophe is imminent. This is the closest it's ever been to midnight since the height of the Cold War in 1953. Now, why are we so close to doomsday? Because of the threat of nuclear war and climate change. That's what they say. Those are the reasons why we are closer now than ever to the end of the world. And what's interesting is not to be political this morning, but if you get online and you read their articles about why we are so close to the end of the world, you learn that even that is Trump's fault. That even, no, I'm serious. I'm, again, not trying to be political. It's just everything is, it really boils down to partisan politics. I mean, we're closer to the end of the world than ever because of 
politics, which is crazy, right? But I just bring this up to show you that we have some folks in our world that believe that the end is very soon. How soon is soon? Well, who knows? One thing you learn from reading these articles, one thing you learn from studying what these guys have come up with is these Nobel laureates have no clue. Nobody really does. But that doesn't stop these end-time prognosticators from, you know, going on the record to say that we are closer to midnight than ever, that the end is near. But I want you to look with me at Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So what's going on here? Well, much of the letter to the Hebrews was written to encourage Jewish Christians to remain steadfast in the faith. The encouragement comes by way of the author pointing out the superiority of Jesus in every way. We've talked about that being one of the themes that we see throughout the Bible. The Old Testament points to the Messiah and the coming kingdom and a better than system, a better savior, a better deliverer, a better everything, right? And so the Hebrew writer is making a contrast here to show that Jesus is better than Moses or any other deliverer or the prophets. The new law is better than the old law. And so you see this contrast happen over and over again. And we see that The contrast between the way God spoke in the Old Testament and the way that that God spoke once the Messiah arrived. There's that contrast as well. It says, he spoke to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. God's revelation didn't come all at once. It was progressive. And so God spoke through prophets. He spoke in audible voice. He spoke in dreams. He spoke in visions and things like that. But once the Messiah came on the scene, he spoke through his word. It was a new word. And every time God sent a new word, he sent signs to accompany it, right? When he sent Moses and that new word by Moses, he equipped him with miracles. You know, remember what he did in order to prove that his message was from God? He throws his staff down, it turns into a serpent. He puts his hand in his cloak and it pulls it out, becomes leprous. Same thing with Jesus. When he sent his son, the new word, he sent signs to accompany that word to confirm who he was. God has spoken in these last days through his son. I want you to make note of the contrast. It says, in times past, it was through the prophets, but in these last days, it is through Jesus. We see in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, the apostles spoke of their time as the time of the Messiah, referring to Joel. This is what they said. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So that phrase, in these last days... It refers to the final phase of history, the coming of Christ, and that continues until Jesus comes again. So it is the time that we are living in right now. God is still speaking, and he is speaking through his word, a word that is all about the word, Jesus Christ. It was Peter who said this, 
to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Seeing that everything has been given to us, everything pertaining to life and godliness, it brings up the question, so what did God give Joseph Smith? What did he give Muhammad? If we have everything pertaining to life and godliness, then there's nothing more to give. So when someone today, whether a preacher or otherwise, claims that God is speaking a new revelation to him, the first two questions you need to ask is why and what? Why would he be giving you something new? We have everything pertaining to life and godliness. And what, what is it that he's giving you? What new word is he giving you, right? Too many religious people are looking for a sign or some direct message from God, and they're failing to see that God is still speaking. What is God saying? Well, here's some examples. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. And then you find this passage in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. The end of all things is near. How soon is soon? How quick is quick? How, how close is near? Well, None of us really know. None of us really have a clue. I mean, you see some folks that get on TV and try to tell you that you need to prepare because the end of the world is at hand, but they don't know either. And in fact, many of these people have made those claims before, which should really discredit them, right? Yet they continue to gather a following. But what we find out from the New Testament writers to people who make forecasts today is no one really has a clue, right? Jesus, when he comes, it'll be like a thief in the night. The people that wrote these words, whether it's Peter, Paul, they expected Jesus to return soon in their own lifetime. But one thing we learn about God is that he doesn't measure time the same way that we do. So soon could be 2,000 years, it could be 1,000 years, it could be 50 years, it could be tomorrow, right? We're closer to the second coming than ever before. It's kind of like the little boy who was, who was sleeping and they... They had a grandfather clock in his house, and that grandfather clock chimed once for each hour. So one time for one o'clock, two times for two o'clock, three times for three o'clock, so on. But the grandfather clock went haywire. It malfunctioned. And so it chimed 13 times, and the little boy heard it, and he got up, and he woke everybody and said, hurry, we're closer now, we're, we're, we're later now than ever, right? And that's true in a spiritual sense. It's as late now as it's ever been. We are closer to the second coming than ever before. And that truth should cause us to pause. It should arrest us and make us ask the question, so what difference does it make? What difference does that make? That we are closer now than we've ever been and tomorrow will be even closer. What difference does that make in our lives? How do we pass the time? What do we do in the meantime? I can remember 
when my kids were really small, we had a Pontiac Grand Prix, and there wasn't a lot of room for them in the back seat. And we made that 10-hour drive from Abilene back to Arkansas for the holidays. And there was a common refrain that came from the back seat. You know what it was? Are we there yet? It's an honest question. It's an annoying question, but an honest one. I mean, you can imagine being scrunched together. You don't want to be close to your brother or sister, not that close anyway. And you're scrunched in, and it's boring, and 10 hours seems like it takes three days. And so what do you do to pass the time on a trip like that? Well, we tried to find license plates from all 50 states. We played I Spy. I I threatened to beat them, you know, if they didn't be quiet. I mean, we did a lot of different things in order to pass the time. But I always loved to see their face. I'd look in the rearview mirror and say, hey, kids, we're almost there. And they'd get so excited, and then we'd pull in Grandma's driveway, and they'd hop out of the car and run in and jump into our arms because they had finally made it. And so all the frustration and irritation was gone at that moment. And you think, I wish Christians were more like that. I wish we anticipated Jesus is coming more than we do. I wish that we looked forward to it. I wish that we, we thought about the end, whether it be our end or the end of time when Jesus comes back. I wish we thought more about that, that we anticipated it, and that, that we had these visions of when he comes back, us jumping into his arms, so excited to spend eternity with him. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do until Jesus returns? We might phrase it this way, how do we prepare for the end of the world? The band REM saying it's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. How do we get to that point where we realize it's the end of the world and I'm okay with it? I'm good. Whatever happens, happens because I know I'm secure. Look with me at 1 Peter 4 beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. If you've ever read through 1 Peter and really 2 Peter, you understand that much of this could be written to American Christians today. Now, I've said it before, and I'll continue to say, the Bible wasn't written to you. There is an original audience, but the Bible was written for you, of course. And this is one of those books of the Bible that gets right up in your kitchen and really confronts you 
And as American Christians, we can glean a lot from this that will help us. One of the sub-themes of the Bible that we see over and over is exile and darkness. We see that the Israelites were in exile, taken into exile by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. You know, first they were in exile in Egypt as slaves. We as Christians outside of Christ, though, before we became a Christian, we are exiled. But even as Christians, we are exiles, right? Because as Peter calls us, pilgrims and sojourners, aliens and strangers in this world, this world is not our home. Peter also uses a phrase called the exiles of dispersion. That refers to those who were scattered after exile from Assyria and Babylon. And so we too find ourselves in that place waiting for the second coming of Jesus or until we go home, we find ourselves in exile. We are of that dispersion that we have been scattered waiting for our inheritance. It's also important to understand that being in exile, at least in Peter's mind, wasn't just about where we're living, but also the type of life that we're living the state that we're living in. It's important to note as well that Peter never uses the language that we aliens will go somewhere when our exile is over. That's interesting to note. He doesn't talk about Christians flying away to heaven. No, he talks about appearing and revealing. Things like our faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our inheritance that is guarded in heaven will be revealed in the last time. When Jesus appears, we will receive an unfading crown of glory. Peter pictures Jesus and heaven and our inheritance as things that are just unseen. But at some point, they will be revealed and we will see them. So Peter's message is not really one of waiting to go to heaven. No, Peter's message is about watching and waiting for Christ to appear. And when Christ appears, he will gather his exiles who have been dispersed. When the chief shepherd comes, he's going to gather all of his lambs, all of his sheep that have been dispersed, and he's going to bring them back together. Now, much of 1 Peter, you have to understand, also deals with persecution and how Christians are to handle persecution and mistreatment in the world. In other words, it's going to happen. But Peter also says it's temporary. And we see that message many times in the New Testament, that this persecution will not last. Exiles won't be exiles forever, that there is hope on the horizon. There is something better to look forward to for those who have been saved, those who have been washed in baptism. Like Paul, Peter encourages these aliens and these strangers to keep the faith, keep obeying the gospel and cling to hope. And don't be pulled away by false teachers. Don't fall away from the faith. And then in verse 7, he says, for the end of all things is near. Then there's a therefore. And a therefore just means that the writer is about to connect what he just said to what came before. What he is about to say is going to be based on what he just said. The end of all things is near, therefore. What's the therefore? And Peter says it, and you probably picked up on it as we were reading through it. What do we do to prepare for the end of the world? Well, it's quite simple, right? Don't panic. Don't be so touchy. Don't lock your door and don't waste what God has given you. That's what you picked out of that, right? Actually, let's expound on that for just a few minutes. The first thing he says in so many words is don't panic. We talk about preparing for the worst. Sometimes we go to the grocery store when the weatherman calls for snow. We think we're going to be snowed in for three or four days. So we go to the grocery store and we get supplies. Um, 
We prepare for the worst when the doctor says that they found a lesion or a spot on the x-ray. We prepare ourselves for the worst by filling out a, a DNR or a last will and testament. We prepare for the worst by building a storm shelter or a safe house in case you know, that, that terrible storm comes and we're safe. We look at this passage a lot of times and we assume that, that Peter is some survival prepper. That he's just trying to, to hunker down and wait for the end of the world. But Peter is not preparing for the worst. Peter is preparing for the best. And he's telling us how to do the same. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. He's saying, don't panic. Don't panic because you got to make time for prayer. Keep it together between the ears because it's important that you stay focused here. Jesus is coming and you need to prepare. And one of the ways that you prepare is on your knees, right? All great battles, especially the spiritual battle, is fought on our knees. We pray. We lower our blood pressure by praying. I don't have to tell you that there are plenty of things that distract us and cause us to maybe be impatient. Critical impatience is at its highest right now. I mean, especially when we're driving, so many people are distracted. Somebody pulls out in front of you and causes you to slam on your brakes and spill your coffee. You know, you're sitting at a, at a red light and it turns green and you, know, you don't even have a half a second before somebody honks at you to go. You know, we see it all the time when we're driving that people are just distracted. How many near accidents have you had because of somebody being distracted or maybe you being distracted, right? And so when it comes to this life, we've got to somehow keep our focus on what's most important because many of the things that drive us nuts, we won't care anything about and they'll immediately go away when Jesus returns. We've got to keep things in their proper perspective, right? We're too uptight. We're always racing from one activity to another. We're, we're stressed to the max and we're angry and we're ill-tempered. We're kind of like that volcano waiting to erupt. It's so easy to become distracted by the circumstances around us. And Peter says, clear your head. To survive, you need to see things from the proper perspective. See things through the lens of Jesus and through the second coming. Don't be so tightly wound that you can't focus on what's most important. And secondly, he says, don't be so touchy. Notice the words, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. The word that he uses there for fervent or fervently is used to describe a runner who is stretching out for the finish line. It's a word used for a basketball player reaching high up in the air to grab a rebound or a baseball player stretching out to catch that fly ball. It's used of Christians. It's used of Jesus. It's used of God. It's a word that connotes a stretched out love. God doesn't write our sins in the sky for everyone to see. Jesus didn't go over to the disciples after talking with a young lady or a young man and say, oh, you wouldn't believe what they're dealing with, let me tell you. He doesn't do that. We shouldn't do that. Love covers. It protects. When it comes to being a family, we protect one another because we love one another. The Christians that Peter is addressing were facing difficulties both from without and within. When what they needed above all else was a fervent love for one another. And that's what we need above all else. 
We need to stick together, the kind of love that, that's like glue that binds us to where we can't be torn apart, not from God, not from each other. And you say, yes, but, but they hurt me, but they're, they're a hypocrite. Get over it. Jesus is coming back, right? Quit being so touchy. I realize people have done some heinous things to you, and that's terrible, and that's awful. But is that even going to be a consideration when Jesus returns? Keep things in the proper perspective and understand that the time is near. I need to be focused on what's most important here. And whether you like it or not, to love like this will cost you something. Love covers. It's sacrificial. It was for God, it was for Jesus, and it should be for us as well. You know, my oldest daughter got married in July. And as she was standing up there holding hands with Ian, and they were looking in each other's eyes and reciting the vows, I, I couldn't help but just sit there and, and think, man, y'all don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, y- y'all don't have a clue. But I mean, how could they? I've been married 23 years and don't have a clue. We learn as we go, don't we? We learn as we go. And one of the things you learn in marriage, if it's going to be successful, is that love covers a multitude of sins. You learn to love, you learn to forgive, and you get back to doing what's most important, right? Serving God, serving others. That's what Peter is pointing to. Thirdly, he says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. In essence, he says, don't lock your door. I don't think we always realize how important hospitality was to people back in the first century. It was huge. The first church met in homes. Therefore, your home was a missionary tool. It was a ministry tool. Traveling preachers had nowhere to stay if it wasn't for the the Christians opening their homes. Hospitality was of highest importance. And Peter is saying, don't go hole up in your house and wait for Jesus to come and knock on your door. Open your door. Be hospitable. Use your home as a ministry tool. Your home was never intended, I don't believe anyway, to be a refuge from the world only. I don't believe your home was ever intended to be a badge of status. I believe your home was intended to be a place where God lives, where Jesus is shown, where people can see you living out the will of God as you invite them in, as you show them hospitality. You know, when it comes to being hospitable, Don't stay closed off from the world around you behind a locked door. Like our first century predecessors, let's use our homes as a means to minister to others. Picture this. Picture Jesus coming back and finding us gathered together, eating a meal and enjoying fellowship with one another. Picture Jesus coming back and finding us sitting on the couch in our house with other fellow Christians singing praises in a devotional. How wonderful would that be? And the last thing he says is, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In other words, don't waste what God has given you, which implies a couple of things, right? It implies that God has given you something, that everyone has a gift. There's no such thing as a zero-talent individual. And secondly, you are to use that gift to serve God and to serve others. So when it comes to being faithful in the Lord, we we have to use what God has given us. We have to do something with, with what God has given us. During World War II, there was this little French village that had a statue of Jesus in the middle of the town square. This village suffered great damage. It was almost completely destroyed, including that statue of Jesus. 
But some of the villagers gathered up the pieces and they glued it back together. So that when the war was over, they put that statue of Jesus back in the town square. And it was pretty rugged looking. I mean, it had cracks and, you know, and all that. But they, they felt that that was fitting considering what they went through. But one thing that bothered the villagers greatly was the fact that they couldn't find the hands to the statue. They couldn't piece those back together. So you had this statue of Jesus with no hands. And so one villager came up with an idea. He created a plaque that they put at the bottom of the statue that said, He has no hands but ours. And how true that is of us. He has no hands but ours. He has no feet but ours. He has no lips but ours. We are his primary method. And therefore, we use the talents and the gifts that he has given us to bring others to him. I want you to notice the commonality among all these things that Peter exhorts these exiles to do to prepare for the end of the world. Have you noticed? He says basically, keep praying, keep loving, keep serving. In other words, let Jesus find you being Jesus when he returns. How great that would be, right? That Jesus finds you being Jesus when he returns. I don't know what you need to do to prepare for the end of the world. But my guess is we all need to do something. One thing I wish we would all do is pray for Jesus to return. Let's pray for him to come back. The sooner he comes back, the better off everything is going to be, right? For us as children of God. But that means something, doesn't it? That means you better get to work if you haven't already. That means that we are seeking to save the lost, that we are carrying out our primary mission. That means that we are serving God and serving others so that when he comes, he finds us doing his work. I don't know what you need to do to prepare for the end of the world, but I know this. We're closer now than we've ever been. And I know that Jesus has promised he's going to return. How will, we how will he find you when he does get here? Will he find you working? Will he find you doing his will? Will he find you being Jesus when he returns? You know, my kids used to love to play hide and seek. And quite honestly, they were terrible at it. They would go and hide and they would be under the bed, but their feet would be sticking out, you know. Or they'd hide behind the curtain and they'd giggle the whole time. They weren't hard to find. But then there would be those times where they'd say, Daddy, you go hide. And so I would, and they'd close their eyes and count to ten, and they would spend, if I let them, half the day trying to find me. They couldn't find me. They were terrible at hiding, and I was the, the hide-and-seek champion every time. I was undefeated. Here's what I know. Ready or not, Jesus is coming. Ready or not, he's coming. There's no hiding from that fact. The countdown has begun. The countdown has begun. He is coming back. What are you doing to prepare? 